Hi there, it's Charlene. I'd like to thank Adobe for supporting this podcast. Adobe is changing the world through digital experiences. Find out more at adobe.com. Hi, Charlene Lee here. And today I have the great honor and privilege of interviewing and talking with my friend, Rebecca Marcier Kaufman. So Rebecca, thank you so much for joining me here today. Charlene, it's a pleasure. And um, I'm, I've asked Rebecca to come here because she has a brand new book out called Fit CEO, which I think is so relevant to how we be leaders. So one of the things I would love Rebecca to do as we get started is to give a little bit of a background about all your fantastic work experience. Sure. A little bit of background. I worked, uh, gosh, uh it seems like 30 plus years in corporate America and then just started my own firm. But in that time, I started off in strategy consulting in London, did that for about three years, moved back to the United States and started off in a little tiny place called First Deposit that over all the many years is now part of Chase. And then I moved to Wells and I was there for 13 years and ended up eventually running a small business. From there, I, I moved to City. And at City, I had three really great roles. One, I was president of California, Nevada, and got to run our retail bank at the time, or their retail bank. And then I moved in, became um, president and CEO of Banamex USA, uh, which is a, the Mexican subsidiary in the United States of City, and then moved to run the international personal bank for the last four years that I was at City. I was there a total of 12 years and was also uh, chairman of the board of Banamex USA. So just a fantastic career, really loved it. Uh, got to work in a hundred countries and then decided it was time to participate in the soup of the Bay Area uh, and take all this financial services knowledge and, and advise fintech CEOs. And I sit on boards and I'm just really enjoying it and wrote a book. So there you go. All of your spare time. It's amazing. All of my spare time. <laughs> exactly. And and just to give the audience a, a bit of a, a bit of a background into our relationship, Rebecca and I are dear friends and have known each other for quite a few years. We were in this group, a CEO group called YPO in a forum together. So we have talked and been through a lot and experienced a lot together. Exactly. Including some kind of crazy walking between trees. So you can yeah. tell them all about that. <laughs> Lots of walks. And one of the things I've always admired about Rebecca is that while doing all of this crazy travel, doing all of this um, amazing work, transformative work, just turning around companies and groups and cultures, she's like a swan floating on the lake, just completely filled with grace, centered and calm through all of it. And I would always turn to her and go like, how on earth do you do this? And um, thank goodness she put all of that wisdom into her new book. So wanted her to talk about that and also talk about some of her experiences in leading change. So Rebecca, tell us a little bit about the book. What, sure. what inspired you to write this? Absolutely. You know, what inspired me to write it were different colleagues over the years who would travel with me and, you know, I'd run into them in the gym and they'd say, wow, I watched you just do a really efficient workout. Or I'd be in a foreign country with them with my tennis shoes on saying, let's walk to the office, let's walk to dinner. And they'd always talk to me about why do you, why do you make sure we always walk everywhere? And I said, you know, I, I think it's a really important part of energy management and of, of staying centered 
while I'm leading, you know, some of the teams I led were 5,000 people. Sometimes I'd be in four countries in one week. And it enabled me just time to be out in the air, the sunlight, fresh air, and really reground myself. So all of those habits that I created over the years in my different roles, uh, people would say to me when I would tell them about it, like the one you just mentioned, I used to always advise people be a duck, you know, paddle like mad underwater, but glide on top. And people say, oh my gosh, you need to write a book someday about all these tips that you have. And so I'd say really my colleagues planted the idea in my head that someday I should write a book. And probably 10, 12 years ago, I came up with the idea of fit CEO is what I wanted to write. Like the whole idea of mental, spiritual, physical, emotional fitness. You can't really show up as a great leader if you're not really actively working at all those levels, right? If you're emotionally aligned with the team, spiritually, physically aligned with yourself and then aligned with the team. So in some ways, Fit CEO in a nutshell is really the personal management side of emotional intelligence. I, I love how you talk about how fitness and leadership is like a 360 degree experience of mind, body, heart, and soul. Um, And and so if you think about how important this is, give an example of how being fit, being centered in that way, grounded in that way, really help you bring about massive amounts of change in your experience. Sure. Well, honestly, being a turnaround CEO is physically exhausting. And so the hours, the energy, the stamina, you know, I, um, I took on a, some really interesting turnarounds, turn it ups. And often a team will be very stressed when you come in as a new leader. The m- most important thing I can do is go out and touch a lot of teams. So some of those international jobs, I would, I had offices in 11, 12 countries, clients in a hundred countries. I got on airplane and made sure I went to every office so I could physically be in the space with the employees and share with them the message of what we were doing, why we were doing it, and literally break bread with them. One of the big things I do is try to make sure that, uh, especially with the leadership team, spend time with them so they can ask me questions, kind of demystify the threat of change, right? People fear change, but if you can go and talk them through it, often you demystify the change so then they're less fearful and it's much easier to make the change. Let's dig into that a little bit more because, I mean, change is incredibly difficult. And here you are creating a change, not just across one business unit, but across multiple countries and regions too. I mean, how do you transform an organization? What is, what's the first thing you have to do? Because it's one thing to say, let's go change, but how do you get people on board? Sure. I mean, usually I'll spend time first with the leadership team that I have to understand what are the issues? What do we have to solve? Like what's the burning platform? Usually by the time I was brought in, something was seriously on fire. And so I usually knew what that was, but I wanted to hear what everyone else understood that to be. Once you've defined the burning platform and agreed with everyone, this thing is on fire, um, you can get pretty quick alignment that we got to manage that fire and quickly get to some green planting for growth. So I'd say very early on, I spend time with the directs and then their next level assessing the issue quickly and planning a solution and then painting a vision of the longer term future. So really getting agreement on what the burning platform is, then quickly defining what do we need to do to 
put that fire out and then get ready for the green shoots and then sharing a really optimistic vision of the future that everyone can get behind. So it's kind of have three parts. And, and I'm, I go, I'm sure you never had this problem that people just really didn't want to change, even though you gave them all the evidence, all the data. Did you have situations where people just like, I, I just don't want to do this? That huge oh, every, Everyone has that problem. Uh, if, if everyone wanted to change, it would be easy. The reason why change is hard is there are always resistors. I, I think the simplest way to think about it is that there are usually a third, a third, a third. Usually a third will buy into the new manager or to the change pretty energetically. And a third will sit in the middle and sort of wait and see you know, they're not negative, they're not positive, they're neutral. And then a third, I mean, I'm way summarizing, but a third will often sort of say, ah, seen this story before, been to that turnaround meeting before, done this before, you know, kind of negative. So really, I tend to focus my time on the third that are super all in, because they're the ones that are going to get that middle third to being really all in. So that's where I spend my time. I do not spend my time on the naysayers, but if the naysayers are public, then I completely address it in town oh. halls and any meeting. Yeah. How do you address the naysayers? Just transparently. You know, I hear you. Sorry, you feel that way. I totally disagree. Here's why I'm really excited about this positive future. And I keep painting that positive future. So that really, you're not talking to that person. You're talking to every the other two thirds in the room. That's so interesting. So what you're what you're doing is not trying to convince a naysayer. You're not going to waste any energy on that. What you're doing is addressing their issues, and then and as a public demonstration that this is what we're focusing on. Keep focusing sure. on that bright future that we have. I had a really interesting experience with a naysayer who's now a one. Of, if a naysayer is turned around, they're usually your wildliest, biggest fan. And I did have one at one of my turnarounds where a gentleman, when I was getting back on the airplane for a nine-hour flight home, handed me a letter signed by 20 people about all the problems in that office and how it had been going on forever and no one ever answers them and no one ever done anything. So I, I got back and instead of like showing it to all the general counsels and getting all this advice, I just wrote my, from my heart response of why I would be different and why I'm going to do something. I did show it to the attorneys and of course they did want to change things, but I said, look, it's just got to be totally transparent. Sent that back. And that gentleman sent me back a note saying, wow, no one's ever answered every single one of my issues. Again, I wasn't saying I'm going to solve them all. I'm just saying, here's my approach. Um, we did solve them, but I didn't, I, I didn't promise something I didn't know I could deliver yet until he got on board. He got on board and he was for years, one of my wildest fans. You know, it's interesting. Um, what he was saying to you is like, well, no one ever took me seriously. Mm-hmm. No one ever um, took the time to actually consider and, and answer my questions. And I hear from people over and over again, that all they want from our leaders is that we be honest with them, that we be fair with them that we treat them with respect. So it sounds like in many ways, the naysayers just want to be heard. And yeah, demonstrate that you're hearing them. That makes such a difference. Sure. And there are some naysayers that are truly burnt out and it is time for them to move on. And that's okay too. But most people just, you know, the naysayers or the, the third that don't want to get on board with the change, they're just tired. So if you explain, here's this optimistic future, they might and you stick around long enough to show the positive steps, you know, they need to see some real movement. 
So I think that's what gets people to buy in is when you start to demonstrate the results of the positive change. And that that was always part of the plan. So when I talked about those steps of what's the burning platform, what do we need to do now? And then every month, you know, some for the most turnarounds, I would have a weekly, monthly plan of all the metrics and different things we need to achieve and then announce that back out to everyone transparently, publicly, and celebrate the heck out of it. So we had a lot of celebrations. At one of my turnarounds, we had about a thousand things to achieve. And every time we achieved 10, I had a party, virtual party or in-person party in the kitchen, uh, served bagels or something. And then when we hit 100, I'd have a big party, bigger party. So just constantly telling everyone, look, we got these 10 solved. Now we're going to do the next 10 and then the next 10 and then the next 10. It seems like so much of this is about um, just communicating. I, I know that one of the things you talk on the book is repeating key messages over and over and over again. Like this is where we're heading. They're doing this. We're all on track uh, in order to have these motivations and this belief for where we're going. Um, I, I'm curious, again, this feels like it's this focus on culture. And it yep. seems oftentimes culture is this, this immovable force, right? These turnarounds require a huge shift in culture. How yep. do you think about systematically, intentionally changing that culture through these repeated messages? Is it just like just repetition? Is that the key? What else is what else is going well, on? It's, it's I mean that's a big part of it, but absolutely in the book I talk about um, repeating key messages because honestly, if someone hasn't heard it twenty times in all the different vehicles, at a minimum, it, they haven't been able to hear it. And so for some, they're like, I got it the first time. Great. That's not the norm in an organization. You know, that's your wild, enthusiastic supporter who you said it once and they're like, I'm in, right? But that's not your whole organization. And that's certainly not an organization that has lots of layers and thousands of people, which is what I've typically had. Um, but in terms of culture, culture to me is is everything. So you, you have to start with culture. I typically, when I come in for turnarounds or turn it ups, We'll ask the team within that like first six weeks, what do you love about the culture? What do you want to retain in the culture? Because the last thing you want to do when you're coming in for a change is get rid of something that everyone likes that's working. So that's step one for me is what do you all who are here love about your existing culture and get all that up on a, a board? Then what are the things you don't like? And typically I have seen there's some pretty common things like um, blame that would often come up, you know, blame culture. Well, let's kill it. We all agreed we're going to kill it. So then each of us who if we ever see each other blaming anyone, we kill it because it's not our culture. But they love the culture of success and praise and globality or customer centricity. So typically I then take all of that with the leadership team. Uh, and often an extended leadership team, not just my directs, but usually my directs plus like another layer and say, okay, we just defined to retain these elements. We defined we want to kill these. We all agree on that. And then I can get it into four categories. I talk about it in the book, the four categories. You know, there's always a category around the customer or customer centricity. There's always a category around the employee and the employee experience, what we want that to be. There's a category around shareholder return. You could call it stakeholder return, both work. And then there's a category for me that has changed and morphed over the years. I'm going to call it operational excellence right now, but it could be how you 
deliver with excellence in the marketplace. In financial services, that's with regulators, in partnership with regulators, um, There's a, and, and digitally. And there's so many elements of operational excellence, but it's about the how, how we do what we do. Those have served me well my whole career of thinking about culture under those categories, customer, client, employee, excellent execution, and then uh, shareholder, stakeholder return. You know, one thing and I, I do share that in the book. Yes. And, and um, what's wonderful about that is that it's a really nice framework that applies in so many situations. Every organization, every leader has those four situations, those four categories. I want to go into that, that last category of operational excellence, because one of the things I'm struck is, is when people are trying to create change, one of the limiting beliefs people have is we can't fail. And so I, I want to point out that distinction between perfection and what you talked about, excellence. And uh, it's something that comes across in the book, too, as well. It's like, you know, give yourself some ease. I love that. Give yourself some space. You know, yeah. give yourself room yeah. when you're putting something on, take something off. Can you talk a little bit about yeah. this whole idea of excellence and how that's different from the way that we think about, you know, perfection or doing things to oh, yeah. the max? Well, actually, operational excellence is the opposite of perfection because zero error means you're not learning. You couldn't possibly, you know, you learn a lot from error. So you don't want a lot of error, but you need some. Um, so what we tried to cover in the book is that for every single topic we covered, what is the immediate and imperfect action? And let's go to immediate. A big part of excellent execution is doing it. A lot of people get stuck because they don't act. So every concept we cover in the book then has an immediate and imperfect action step. So for your personal health, if it's start walking, well, let's walk 10 minutes today. Don't get into the habit of, oh my goodness, for me to get physically healthy, I have to do a two hour, three three mile run or something, or six mile run. Like it, the bar is so high that you then injure yourself, hurt yourself in some way, you're wiped out, you can't move for the next week and you don't want to do it again. That's the same in a company. You know, the the reason why sports and all of it are such great metaphors for business is they're so apropos. They do work. So in same thing in business, you need to walk before you run. So same thing. Start with if you want to do something operationally excellent for the client, don't try to do everything end to end. Start with what is the moment of truth for that client? Or there's probably moments of truth. But pick one at a time, get it excellent to, you know, the best possible experience you can, not perfect. See, excellent is different than perfect. Um, perfect leaves no room. And actually, I don't think that perfect ever is stable, but excellent. You know, if you had an excellent client experience, right, with a somebody, they might've even made a mistake and how they recuperated from the mistake was so good. You felt it was excellent. I love that because um, I love the idea that perfection leaves no room for any sort of growth and exploration. It's just remaining static in the place where you are. That's a beautiful yeah. way to put that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I want to also talk a little bit about just, you know, you have, there are times when, you know, things must have gone really out of control. I mean, you've talked about sometimes in the book how I, I remember one trip. I remember this trip distinctly when you went to Pueblo, Mexico. And I'm like, how come you're not there yet? How, it's like been days. You left days ago and you're still on the road. You're supposed to be there by now. Can you talk a bit about that? Share that experience. And then also like, 
that was that must have been so incredibly stressful, right? How do you deal with crises and stress? Because you've seen your fair share of them. Oh my goodness, that is that trip for me was such a. I've had so many of those because I've traveled so much. I think I traveled 200, 300,000 miles a year. But that trip in particular, I was traveling with five people. And um, we were on our way to a ceremony in Pueblo where I was going to be honored with a Lifetime Achievement Award by the Fulbright Group. And it's like, this is one of the probably most momentous awards I've ever won in my life. And I remember thinking, I have to change airplanes. I'm going to put my gown you know, like my long dress in my carry-on. So I had everything in my carry-on because I was so worried about transferring planes in Mexico City. And so, but literally everything went wrong. Got to the airport, a hailstorm started. And so all the air, um, airplanes got grounded. And then, you know, it was like every hour they kept saying, we're going to go, we're going to go, we're going to go. You've been through this. Many people who travel on business have been through this. But once it hit like three in the morning, the airport decided to close and so we're at three in the morning, all flights canceled. We book ourselves on the next flight the next morning. We could not get a flight to Pueblo. They were all booked. So we decided to book a flight to Mexico City, the five of us. And then we were going to rent a car and drive to Pueblo. And uh, it just got crazier and crazier. We get to the hotel. I think we slept maybe two hours before we had to get back to the Houston airport. It, it got, and then we got on the airplane the next morning. Long story short, we're on the runway, about to take off, and the, the tire explodes. And for those of you who've never had this happen, it never happened to me on an airplane before. You don't know if you're under like a terrorist attack. You hear a huge explosion. You don't know what's going on. It's pretty rare. So then we have to like get into buses, get off that airplane, you know, bus back to terminal, rebook all the flights. I mean, this went on. We had left two days earlier because we were going to do some client events in Mexico. Um, <laughs> we got there just a few hours before I was going to be on stage to receive this award. It was just hysterical with my, you know, wrinkled dress hanging in the shower, trying to figure out how to, it was just hysterical, but it's a great story. So your question is, how do you not stress out? You know, we had client events. I had the speakers with me at the client events. One of them was uh, like a technical investment speaking on uh, bonds and uh, stocks and a very technical expert on that. And like, who was going to take over and do that in Spanish for him? Uh, so we were probably one in the morning. He was on the phone in the airport behind me, training someone in Mexico City, one member of our team to give that talk. We were getting ready for like, okay, if we, could we rent a van, all the different backup plans to the backup plans of how we'd get to this event. Um, could we zoom me in if we couldn't do it, if I weren't going to make it? At, at this point, my son and my mother had taken a different flight, I had left about a day and a half after us and were already in Puebla before us. I mean, it was just funny. And we had 300 people coming in for this event. So um, it all worked out. But the how to manage the stress was, I think I just stay really focused on getting to the end goal and not stressing about what could go wrong, but figuring out how do we get just each step at a time. And I learned that early on. There's no way to do that amount of travel or manage thousands of people or billions of dollars. And they say, don't sweat the small stuff. I have to say, I do sweat the small stuff. But when you're in a major crisis, you can't sweat the small stuff. Like you just have to figure out again, what's that burning platform and focus on it. And so our goal was to get to Puebla and we did everything to do that. 
crazy you know, story. And it's interesting, you know, you, you talk a little bit about understanding what you can control and what you can't. I mean, there's nothing you can do about hailstorms and blown airplane tires. There's nothing you can do about that. Right. So don't stress about that, I guess. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. Easier said than done. Every I watched everyone. Everyone does different things. I go into solution mode. You know, some people just go into Zen mode. I go into what can I control? Well, let's get backup plans, cars, other flights, hotel, you know. You know, when, one of the things also you talk about is about being agile and flexible. And, uh, and one of the things that it seems to be so important is to be able to see, take all of these things that are coming at you. Um, and you had some great analogies. Can you talk a little bit about the two analogies of seaweed <laughs> and martial <laughs> arts? Rebecca, yes. take us into this. I got to hear it didn't make sense to me, but then your explanation totally did. So Sure. So, you know, I've been on a lot of board of directors. And at one point when I became the um, president and CEO of this bank, you know, the first day you're walking in and you're sitting there and everything's tar- – or you think, or I thought, everything was targeted at me. I'm the the CEO. So every issue, every discussion, I, I could be the, the target. And I had to quickly remember, no, 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 I'm seaweed. I'm very grounded. And when those waves come crashing in, I can just bend and pop back up. So I have used that throughout my career because seaweed gets crashed by the most powerful water force. And then those seaweed pop back up. And I think it's really helpful, especially when you're under stress. So as a turnaround CEO, everyone was, everyone wanted a piece of me. And I don't mean it intentionally bad. They just all needed information. They all needed to know when everything was going to be fixed and they were doing their job. And so I have to remember that it's all coming at me, but I'm just going to go down and come back up. I think martial arts, that same idea is that when someone's attacking you, how do you use their energy? And, you know, if they're coming into you, if you go straight back out with force, force hitting force, nothing happened, right? It's just painful. Versus if they're coming into you and you move with it, you can flip them over because you're just using their own energy to flip them over. So I think those are different analogies of how to not have it come at you and hit you hard on and break, but rather use the energy. And, And I didn't really have, I think that's the other thing, just even saying it out loud that I learned as I went along is everyone has a role to play. And so everyone who you might even think is attacking you, they're not, they're just playing their role. They're wearing their hat. If they're the regulator or the board director, they're supposed to dig in on these things. So over the years, I didn't even feel attacked. It was like, okay, you're doing what you need to do. I'm going to do what I need to do. And so it was much less stressful. Hmm. It's interesting because when you think about all the conflict that could arise with you being a leader and and you're creating huge amounts of change, these turnarounds, these pivots and everything, there's bound to be conflicts, right? But it sounds like in many ways what you're trying to find is not not to go at those conflicts directly, but to see where the common ground is. I'm just wondering, how do you handle the inevitable conflicts that come up between you and, and, and other leaders? Well, they're inevitable. So it depends on the conflict, but often I'm such an expert. I like to talk about it, but you might be having conflict with someone who that's absolutely the worst thing possible for them. They don't want to talk about it. So 
maybe with that person, I'll want to break bread. Maybe they just want to feel like we're friends or something. So we have lunch. Um, I do a lot of having lunch, uh, having coffee, just trying to have someone feel comfortable with me. Because sometimes if you don't know somebody, they're more threatening. So I, I did, I always try to spend time with colleagues and anybody just to uh, board members. I used to set up uh, lunches with the board directors and my two or three direct reports so they'd get to know the executive team. Because in a board meeting, it's very structured and formal and it has a, a cadence around governance that's the roles everyone plays. Whereas if you could have lunch and get to know each other and realize that, oh, you grew up in the same town or you both have two daughters or you both have two sons or all these common points, it's just a, a, a way of making ease in the relationship. So I've always tried to add ease. And I spend a lot of time, Lillian and I spend a lot of time on that in the book about how can you make it easy? And in fact, we even wanted when we were designing the book, it to be small, that you could throw it in a purse or a suitcase or a briefcase, that it would be light and it would be easy to read. And the chapters are short. Everything about it is about ease with these kinds of transformations. And I, I, I hope that's coming through um, for folks who are reading it now. But so far from the feedback I've been getting, it, it, people are like, wow, it is. It's like, it's, it is about ease. Yeah. I mean, what I love about the book is that, you know, it's not a traditional business book. When you pick up a business book and like, oh, I got to work at it now. <laughs> this was like an easy read. Um, yeah. And also the exercises you gave, like, hey, here's an imperfect thing to do. And just took the pressure off of me to always have to be perfect as a leader. So really appreciated that and going through the book. Um, oh, you're welcome. I'm yeah. so glad you enjoyed it. It was so good. I keep picking it up and looking at different pieces. I'm like, oh, yeah, this. And it's just so helpful. One thing Wait, I, I have to pause you there. I have to say something. You just made my day because when Lillian and I were trying to describe the book to the publisher, one of the things we said is that we'd love for it to be a reference guide, that you'd read it once and then you'd come back to it and say, oh, I remember reading about X. So you just said that. I am so happy. You just made me Excellent. so happy. I'm glad you made your day. <laughs> there's, there's one thing, again, I was just reading it again. And, and what's so interesting is when you go back and reading it, like there's new things that hit you. And one thing you wrote was authenticity as a form of integrity and that you have to practice this radical honesty and don't lie to yourself. Talk to me a little yeah. bit about where that came from, because I thought that was so interesting and it really hit me when I was going through and it just hit me for a lot of different reasons. It was like, what lies do I tell myself? What are the things ah, I'm saying? Yeah. And also if I don't know myself, how can I be authentic to the people around me? Right. I mean, it's, it's really hard, but there are times when I would be scared out of my wits. I mean, I remember once in 2009, someone got into the elevator with me and I, our stock price had gone to some crazy low and they're like, do you think we're going to have a job? I'm the only breadwinner for the family and I'm really freaking out. And I, I looked at the person, I said, you know, I don't know, but I think we're going to be okay. But I didn't say, Oh, it's all going to be fine because I don't know. I had never seen our stock price at that level either. So I think the radical honesty is if you actually say to another human being, I don't know, I'm not sure. That's a big release for me too, because if I got off that, I said, everything's going to be great. Then I would have lied to myself and lied to them because I don't know. I believe we're all going to be fine. You know, 
Um, and we were, but boy, it was a, a really difficult period and people were scared. And so it's like a trade-off between, I could have said, I'm scared too. I don't know if that would have helped. So that's why I would say, I don't know. You know, so radical honesty without hurting people is what yeah. I try to practice. Yeah. It, you know, what's interesting is that as a leader, it feels sometimes taboo for us to admit we don't know, right? Because we're supposed to have all the answers. And what you're saying here is oftentimes is exactly the right thing to say because it's the honest truth. Yeah. But I don't actually think leaders are supposed to have all the answers. I think leaders are supposed to create an environment that the team who's closest to the client can, who really knows what's going on, can get the answers and do the right thing. So really I view the leader as creating an, an environment of empowered employees to solve the issue. There's no way I could know everything. I had 5,000 employees in one of my roles. There's no way I could know what they were doing, you know, six or seven levels down for me with a client. But I wanted to set a culture that said solving the need for the client ethically, you know, in compliance, you know, profitably, win-win for everyone is the right thing to do. So then you have a culture that says we got to do the right thing. You can't give stuff, everything away for free because then the company won't exist, but you do the right thing for the clients. So I think you build a culture as a leader, but you don't know the answers to everything. Hmm. I like to say oftentimes that you may not have all of the answers, but you're asking some pretty darn good questions that you're letting people yeah. answer. So... Yeah. Last thing I want to talk about, um, you close the book, someone near the end of the book, talking about Alice in Wonderland and this one question <laughs> that you ask all the time. You have, I think, a book um, on your desk someplace of Alice in the Wonderland. And what you write is that you wanted to always have a, a sense of awe and curiosity. I want to ask you, what's the role of awe and curiosity in your role, in your life, and in, your, in the importance of that in being a leader? I think it keeps me grounded as and as well spiritual in terms of awe because it's just amazing what the team does. It's amazing what people can achieve. I'm always so impressed by the work that everyone does and curious so that I stay as a listener to learn from them, from everybody. I learn from everybody. And it gives me a sense of humor you know, uh, who shrunk the door. I say that a lot, like who shrunk the door? Like, seriously, that's what we're supposed to do. Um, it makes me have perspective. I think it, I think staying in a state of curiosity and awe makes me more open for what we talk about a lot in the book about that imperfection. Like, what do we need to do? And it doesn't have to be perfect, but let's learn through it with awe and appreciation for everything everyone does and curiosity for how we're going to solve it. Rebecca, this has been fascinating. Thank you for taking the time. If people would like to learn more about you and your work, the book, where can they go? Great. So the book has its own website, uh, fitceobook.com. So fitceobook.com. And then for me, I have a website, rmkgroupllc.com, or can look me up on LinkedIn. Rebecca, thank you so much for joining us again today. Thank you, Charlene, for having me. Hey there. Thanks for listening to the new Rules of Disruption. 
We created this podcast with the hope that you would be inspired to become a disruptor. Disruptors don't just blow things up. They also create and build things that result in huge positive change. This is a change that the world needs now more than ever. And we want to hear about what change you are creating in this world. You can send us your disruptor story by visiting charlenelee.com slash podcast. That's C-H-A-R-L-E-N-E-L-I.com slash podcast. If you are enjoying this podcast, I have one major ask. Please share it with a coworker, manager, or a friend. Let's build communities of disruption together.